Today's passage is from Mark 14, uh, 53 through 72. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also are with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This morning we're looking at Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 53 through the end of the chapter. Quite a chunk of scripture to look at this week, coming uh, as we continue our sermon series through the, the book of Mark, On the Road with Jesus. We've been so on the ground. Mark is, is such an action-packed, moving gospel that lets us see Jesus up close and personal. Last week, we saw Jesus in one of the most personal, intimate moments of, of his betrayal, following the personal, intimate moment of his crying out to the Father in the previous passage in Gethsemane. Last week, we looked at the, the betrayal of Jesus. We saw him arrested at, the, at the, uh, the movement of his disciple. It, it, it's interesting that in, in that passage in Mark, that Mark calls Judas again one of the 12, as if we didn't know that already. We know that. But Mark wants to remind us who it is that comes to Jesus with a kiss. And not only that, we see the disciples scatter. And as was the title of last week's message, Jesus stands alone among enemies, among people who would betray him and scatter from him. Now, that leads us to today's passage here at the end of Mark chapter 14. It's been quite a chapter filled with numerous events, and one of the things it's been filled with is what we've come to know as Markon sandwiches. Now, just in case that's a new phrase for you, I know it's an odd one, uh, a Markon sandwich is, is, a, is a sort of a literary device in the Gospel of Mark where he has a central narrative or teaching that's then surrounded by another that serves as a contrast or serves as a sort of context to highlight the central message. So you have the meat of the section of Scripture surrounded by sort of bread that, that hems it in and gives it a fuller context. In our passage today, what we have is we have the council and its false witnesses on one side of the narrative, and then we have Peter on the other side of the narrative with his false testimony. So what's the meat? The form of the sandwich is to centralize the true testimony of Jesus about himself. We have two sets of false witnesses And we have the truth of Jesus about himself. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we open up your word today, that you would give us an awareness of what it is that you have to inform us, that your word would prove profitable in the midst of your church today. 
And we know that your word is profitable. We know that your word works. But we pray that your spirit would take that word, apply it to our heart with grace. That we could receive it as such by faith. You'd work in us. You'd call us to yourself. Give us not only, not only understanding, but also transformation as your word and spirit works in the midst of the congregation today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning as we begin this passage, the passage begins with Jesus being led from his arrest there in the Garden of Gethsemane into a gathering of the Sanhedrin Council. This council is taking place and it's not even morning. This has been an extended uh, series of narratives beginning with the Lord's Supper, right? The evening before, but all of what's happened from that moment all the way through this moment has been one night. And here's this council gathered before the morning light, and the trial is taking place under the cover of darkness. It's not by mistake that, we would, that Mark would record this for us for us to see. We're, we're given a peek at the second part of the Marcon sandwich in this passage. Look at verse 53. They led Jesus to the high priest, all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. They came together. That's the Sanhedrin. And then we're told in verse 54, Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So we're sort of given all the players of the sandwich, of the bread of this Marcon sandwich. We're given the council and we're given Peter, but we'll have to wait a little bit to see what happens. Surely Peter's outside in that courtyard where just below where the trial is taking place, doubtly he thought he was quite brave to have followed, even at a distance, to be scattered among the guards in the courtyard by the fire. And what we see that takes place upstairs is something I want to highlight. I think that Mark is actually highlighting it for us if we're paying attention, is what happens when the truth doesn't matter. What happens when the truth doesn't matter? Now, hear me on this. I do think that that is uh, as an essential piece of what Mark is telling us. In our passage, in the context of Jesus' trial, the truth did not matter. It is so tempting with that as a main point in my message to go off on my thoughts about what happens in our culture when the truth doesn't matter. It's so tempting, and I, and I know perhaps your minds are, are tempted to do the same thing, especially those of you who are more apologetic in your thinking. You like to think about those sort of things. I would encourage us, let's not run off. Let's stay here. Let's pay attention to what is the nature of what's happening in this event so that we wouldn't run off and think about truth without thinking about the truth. One of the most powerful things that anyone ever taught me when I was a child, I was, had this odd uh, sense of, of being enamored with the word truth. I thought about it all the time from very young. And uh, one time I was with my youth pastor in his car. We were driving around. And he, I, I, told, I was talking to him. And I, I said, I just want to know the truth. really want to get to know what's true. And he said, Jeremiah, you know that truth has a name. Right? I'm like, yeah, I mean, truth. Truth has a name, and the word name is truth, and I want to know it. He said, no, the truth has a name, and the name of the truth is Jesus. And that is key to us, that we not skip off after our, our own imaginations of truth, particularly in our culture in this moment, but that we pay attention to the truth. And what the problem is with today's passage isn't an ignoring of a variety of evidences. The problem in our passage today with this council is ignoring of the truth. When the truth, when Jesus doesn't matter. Look at verse 55 with me. Now the chief priests and the whole, verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. That's, that's so important. It's why this little section, I would title it in this way, when, when truth doesn't matter. The Sanhedrin, it, Mark makes it clear, desires something. What do they desire? They desire Jesus' death. That's key. That's what they want. 
That's what matters in the context of this council of powerful people in Jerusalem. They want death. They're simply seeking testimony and witnesses that will give them what they actually want, you see. Now, the passage tells us right up front, they want something. There's something that they need that is testimony and witnesses in order to get it, and they can't get it. They can't get what they need to get what they want. They have no concern for the truth, which is the rightful purpose of the gathering. This is supposed to be a counsel for justice in the midst of a trial, but they don't want the truth. They have only a concern for a premeditated end. What we see take place breaks with the established protocol for justice at nearly every point. I say the word established. Certainly, it it breaks with anything that would be called justice if you just sort of read it and have a sense of what justice might look like. But it actually breaks with the actual protocol of this very council. I'll offer it this way from James Edwards, a commentator on this passage who's proved helpful many times to us on our way through Mark. James Edwards says, according to the Mishnah, 23 members of the Sanhedrin were necessary to judge capital cases and with reasons for acquittal preceding reasons for conviction. In the capital cases, a verdict of guilty required a second sitting on the following day. Both sittings had to take place during daytime and neither on the eve of Sabbath or a festival. Witnesses were to be warned against rumor and hearsay A charge of blasphemy could not be sustained unless the accused cursed God's name itself, in which case the punishment prescribed was death by stoning with a corpse then hung from a tree. Now, I don't know if James Edwards is just cherry-picking a variety of various protocols and established ways of being a council like this, or if all of that is gathered in one little section of the Mishnah, But pretty much, that is a list of all the things that didn't happen. Those are the established protocols. I mean, just right there, it doesn't happen in daytime. It happens before the light of day, following the rest of Jesus. When truth is not sought, none of the protocols for the establishment of the truth really matter. That's what we see here. Who cares? That's not what we're looking for anyway. We're not looking for reality. We don't, we're not looking for, for evidence that might bring us a knowledge of the truth. We just want to know how to kill him. And so, right? Who cares about protocols anymore? And, and so they, they're, they're swept under the rug. They're brushed aside. Among the many ways the Sanhedrin broke their own procedures for justice, I found it particularly interesting in this, that they were to hear, quote, the reasons for acquittal before the reasons for conviction. That's powerful. That is a beautiful procedure. I like the policy. That sounds like there, there, there is to be a disposition in the council to desire innocence over guilt, to hear the reasons for innocence and acquittal at least, before the reasons for guilt. But though, if an account of evidence and reason, on account of evidence and reason, guilt is established, the council must proceed with just punishment. You see, so the council is supposed to have a disposition to desire acquittal, but a willingness to do what is just. In the case of Jesus, they were anxious for the case against him. They were seeking testimony against Jesus. They, their minds don't even think about the protocol step of evidence for acquittal. Who cares about that? We want something. We want his death, so let's get to it. Let's seek the testimony that is against him. And that's the word. They were seeking testimony against Jesus. And there's always those who are willing to serve the perpetuation of a lie. And they found them. They're not hard to find. They couldn't find true witnesses in verse 45, but rather, verse 46, 56, many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. 
Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that's made by hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. The false testimony that they made didn't agree, and then Mark goes on to establish a particular example, the example of the destruction of the temple. Now what we know is that to establish particularly capital punishment, but any guilty verdict, two witnesses are needed to establish a credible testimony. This is particularly the case in the capital offense and particularly in the, blas- in the claim that someone has blasphemed the name of the Lord. You need two to establish a credible witness against the accused. But they couldn't even produce two similar accounts, yet alone one singular account of actual blasphemy. Now, what's interesting is the example that Mark gives of, of something that they, the witnesses did wind up saying is that Jesus would tear down a temple not made with hands. Mark's recording for us something that been, he's been pointing to for a few chapters now. Jesus actually did say this. Mark doesn't record his statement of this. The other gospel writers do record. Jesus did say something very similar to this. It's interesting, though, that the witnesses giving testimony even about something Jesus did say, they couldn't even get an account of the truth right. Clearly what they found is they found people who were willing to say just about anything, and they did, and it sounded like just about anything. It didn't sound like genuine testimony. Mark's recording for us something that Mark's been sort of telling us for a few chapters as Jesus has gone into the temple. We've seen the Lord go into the temple And when he got there, he exercised authority as he overturned the money changers' tables and he taught daily in the temple courts. And we see the Lord then, after exercising authority in the temple, we see the Lord go out of the temple just a chapter ago. And that we saw that that meant more than simply he left the city. He exits the city and he goes up to the Mount of Olives and he pronounced judgment over the city and over the temple Mark's record of these witnesses with their bumbling account ends up highlighting for us the essential reality about Jesus. What does Mark want us to hear as they give the bumbling account of Jesus? The location of the presence and kingdom reign of the Lord is no longer a temple made with hands. Jesus is the true temple. What is the temple? It's the place of the presence and kingdom reign of the Lord himself. And the presence of the Lord and the kingdom reign of the Lord is in the body, in the person to whom all will worship. It's in Jesus that all would come to him in worship. All who seek refuge would seek refuge where? In the sanctuary? Oh, there is a sanctuary. There is a refuge. And it's in the body of the Christ. We take refuge and we gather for worship in the name of the Lord. But the Sanhedrin doesn't care for all that. They don't care for a careful examination of Jesus' revelation of himself because they don't care about Jesus. They just want something. They just want him dead and out of the way. They're only seeking to pull at a thread of blasphemy woven by the false witnesses and exaggerated by conflicting accounts. And the council isn't seeking the truth because the truth is an interruption. The truth is a sort of impediment to their real aim. Jesus standing there actually before them and who he actually is, is an impediment to what they actually want. They aren't seeking the truth. They're seeking to kill Jesus because what they actually want is something other than the truth. And we've seen that even as they come to Jesus along the way, right? They keep coming and asking them questions. And then Jesus gives them the truth and they walk away angry. They don't want Jesus. They don't want the truth. They want something else. And honestly, it doesn't matter. So let's look. We've seen a people, the way they walk, when truth doesn't matter. But what happens when truth speaks? Look at verse 60 with me. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? 
What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. I mean, think about it for a second. Listen to the question. Have you no answer to make? I could just see Jesus going like, you mean to that? I mean, did you even understand it? I mean, were you listening? Jesus could have said any of that. There, There is no answer that needs to be made. The high priest seeks Jesus' words. Why? The high priest is seeking for Jesus to offer a self-incrimination. It's clear. They looked for evidence, and they found none. They found false witnesses, and that doesn't work. So the high priest turns to Jesus and says, why don't you start talking, and we'll see what we can do with that. The high priest is seeking self-incrimination with the narrative that's woven by the false witnesses ringing in the ears of the council with no objection, hearsay, right? Instead, with that falsehood ringing, it doesn't matter what Jesus says. When you have falsehood hanging in the air, whatever follows the falsehood is just going to weave into whatever narrative you came there to believe. Jesus knows his words have no chance of bringing truth into light in this dark room. It'll only confirm the lies that are already being spoken about him. And more importantly, this is so important, more importantly, the lies that they walked in presuming about him. And I think it's worth just pausing because we're not considering just simple, generic, lowercase t truth. We're speaking about the truth that has a name. We're speaking about Jesus. What are the presumptions that we've made about Jesus? That no matter what I say, no matter what you say, no matter what you read or consider, it's just going to confirm whatever you already sort of believe. That you're unwilling to be confronted with Jesus. Jesus knows what the council is going to do here. And the fact is, he has no interest in participating in the sham with his contribution of some sort of self-defense against blatant, clear, and obvious lies. And so, the first thing that we hear from Jesus, the first thing that the truth says is silence. I find that shocking. Silence. But it's interesting, but that even in his silence, his silence speaks because the scriptures have already spoken about him. Here's what the scriptures say. I encourage you, write this down in the margin of your Bible here. Isaiah 53, 7. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Who is this? that remains silent in the midst of false accusations about him. Maybe he's the one about whom Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 53. It's interesting, though, as I've thought about that, Jesus' silence has bothered me since I was a kid. I've kind of pondered it in, in, in my mind, like, what's Jesus doing here? I mean, couldn't he have just corrected the whole thing by saying, guys, 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 you get it all wrong. And I mean, you were so close over there, false witnesses. I said something like that, but here's what I meant if you would only listen for a second. And and yeah, I walked like this, but I wasn't blaspheming. Let me open up the scriptures with you. Like Jesus does with the man on the road to Emmaus, like Jesus has done with his disciples and he'll do with them after the road. Why doesn't Jesus correct them, right? Why doesn't he enter into an argument In this court, why doesn't he just speak up and correct all the falsehood? If he only would have defended himself, then perhaps he would have saved the council from their grievous error. I've always assumed, and I don't think I'm alone in this. My guess is that this is a a bit of a conventional wisdom about this, that Jesus is silent because he's determined to go to the cross. He doesn't want to say anything because he doesn't want to mess up the plan. Like, if he offers a defense, it might work. So better shut up and let falsehood rule the day, right? Um, For years, I'm like, surely it's just that Jesus is basically saying, I got to die, and I guess by just being silent about the truth, that'll get me what I need. They want to kill me, I want to die, 
Okay, here we go. Then everybody gets, who, who, who believes in him because he dies gets to be saved. It's all good for that sham to happen in that courtroom because at least it produces redemption. Now, while it's right to say that Jesus silently accepts the evil injustice that's perpetuated upon him, I think it's actually error to suggest that his silent plays a sort of passive role in moving him toward his execution. I don't think that Jesus is being silent so that error might rule the day. Rather, Jesus' silence is a considered application of a proverb. And again, I'm blown away by this every time this happens. And this happens so many times in our time through the Gospel of Mark. That we're rolling along and Jesus does something. I've heard it before, thought about it a little bit, even puzzled over it. And then I look at it a little closer. I'm like, Jesus is amazing. He's amazing. He's perfect. Like, he's wise and he's good. I like Jesus more because of the gospel of Mark. What's he doing? Proverbs 26, verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Now, it's interesting, if you look, I think it's either verse 3 or verse 5, it says exactly the opposite. It says, answer a fool according to his folly, and then you'll wind up correcting him or something like that. And Jesus is wise, (laughs) and he knows how to apply this particular proverb in his current context. And what Jesus does by remaining silent is he doesn't enter into a participation in the sham. Because any sort of rising up, oh, let me correct that, let me correct that, they'll just shout him down and the sham gets louder and he he incriminates himself by his defensiveness. And Jesus isn't there to be incriminated because of his character. He's going to be crucified because of his person. Jesus isn't crucified because of his behavior or how he handled himself in his day in court. Jesus is crucified because he's the son of God. Jesus isn't remaining silent because his intention is to avoid being acquitted and instead go to the cross. Jesus remains silent because he's in a courtroom of fools, a council whose intention is not to try him but to kill him. Again, Jesus gives us a better way against our own fits of nature. One of the reasons why I'm so impressed with Jesus here is I think of how often when I am unjustly accused, my first impulse is to fill the room with lots of noise of my own protestations and self-justifications that the unjust accuser would be corrected by my wisdom. But that's not the way injustice works. That's not the way that the foolish and the prideful and the unjust wind up being corrected by self-protestations of our own justice and our own justifications. You see, Jesus isn't being tried. He's not being investigated or examined by a council seeking justice. Jesus is simply being prepped for slaughter. And it's what Isaiah said, right? There, there are no words, there are no arguments that Jesus could make before this court because it's not seeking truth at all. It's not what they're there to do business for. This is a butcher shop, not a courtroom. The, the council, it's just strutting, grasping, raging until they can finally get the right words and all the right orders that will make themselves feel justified in simply killing the man. They already decide they're gonna kill him, They're just trying to make themselves feel better about doing it. This isn't weird. This isn't uncommon that we're like this. They're asking Jesus questions, not for careful examination of the truth. They're questioning him so that he might say something that might justify their predetermined conclusion of the matter, all under the cover of darkness. Now, with this backdrop, we can understand the profound importance of the next question and the next answer. Look at verse 61 with me. Verse 61, but he remained silent, made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, 
This is the second question to Jesus. How, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You see, Jesus is silent. Oh, maybe, I get it. He's, he's not going to participate in a courtroom of fools, but maybe he's scared. Maybe he's afraid. Maybe fear explains his silence. No. No, when Jesus is presented with a simple question, are you the Christ, he boldly proclaims the gospel. Why does he speak here? What's the difference between when he remains silent in the face of his accusers and when he speaks up with a bold proclamation? He couldn't have said something more controversial in this particular moment. Is he... Is he now just standing up and trying to get himself killed? Finally, there's a question that demands an answer by all the faithful. Jesus and everyone since. Finally, there's a question where Jesus' silence is witness that he is willing to suffer here. His words are witness that he has faithfully proclaimed the Christ and the Christ's kingdom no matter the costs. He stands up and proclaims the truth. That's why he speaks. The reality, in, as the question hangs in the air, who is the Christ? All the faithful have to say, Jesus. Jesus is. And if you're Jesus, you say, I am. And then you tell him who Jesus is. Friends, Jesus' silence is a challenge to our natural defensiveness. But I think that there's a far greater challenge in this passage. Jesus' willingness to testify to the truth about the gospel and the kingdom of God is a challenge to our own natural self-preservation. There are times when I've self-justified. There's times when I've been silent. Man, I like Jesus. I'm 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 impressed with Jesus. When we get in close, when Jesus speaks, he speaks the truth. It's almost like he is the truth. That when utterances come off the lips of Jesus, it's a testimony about himself that runs through the gospel of Mark, a testimony of faithfulness. We see this taking place throughout the gospel of Mark. This is probably our most quoted little passage from Mark chapter 8. Verse 31, he does it two more times in Mark 9, 31, and Mark 10, 33. Here's what he says. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Be killed. And after three days, rise. What Jesus has done is he has made an open statement of the Christ. An open declaration of the gospel of the kingdom of God. The truth about Jesus is he gives his life as a ransom for many. And only there is victory and resurrection. Here's one more quote from James Edwards. He says, until the question of the high priest, however, Jesus has steadfastly silenced all the proclamations of his divine sonship. He silenced other people's witness about himself. And he silenced himself until this moment in order truly to understand the meaning of his person, something has been missing. The missing element has been the necessity of his suffering. Only in light of suffering can Jesus openly divulge his identity as God's son. Who is God's son? Who is the Christ? Who is the son of man who occupied the seat of power in the kingdom of heaven forever? Who is he? He's the one that will suffer. And this has been a a challenge for both the Jew and the Greek ever since. All the way to this day, the Christ is the one who will suffer, will die, and then rise. It's in light of his suffering, his betrayal, his arrest, his beatings, his crucifixion. It's in light of those things, and only those things that we come to understand glory. We don't get glory. We don't get to grasp at glory without a Christ that humbled himself and set glory aside. 
It's by the giving of his life that he rescues men. It's by his wounds that we're healed. Look at the question of verse 61 again. The question in verse 61 is this. Have you no answer to make? He remains silent. Verse 61, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed, the simple statement, I am? The high priest and the council will crucify Jesus for that statement. They've been looking for the right words at the right time to justify their preconceived decision. But Jesus will be glorified in the heavenly places for the truth of this statement. That's what he says. I am. And I know what saying I am does. And I know the fullness of the meaning of I am in this particular moment. But I know that the I am is the son of man who is seated at the right hand of power. So, first suffering, then glory. And the room rises up. Blasphemy, right? The high priest tears his clothes and they all start to cry out. There's a ruckus there. The words that they've been waiting for in their preconceived judgment is finally here. And they celebrate with self-justification and Jesus' condemnation. Jesus is claiming not merely to be a Messiah, not merely anointed one. This claim has been made many times by many leaders in the struggle against Roman oppression. The problem with Jesus' claim where the blasphemy accusation comes is the council finally finds their self-justification is that Jesus is the Son of God and claims power and glory for himself. This is the truth in the courtroom. Jesus' claim is extraordinary. Surely it's right for the council to find it shocking. We shouldn't be surprised that there's an inhale and even an exclamation, perhaps even fright or questions. When Jesus breaks his silence, he drops a genuine bombshell testimony. But the council shows their injustice in what, that they make no engagement with Jesus' claim about himself. They ask no further questions. They seek no further comment about the scriptures. They don't consider any of the rest of the testimony about Jesus that he has made in their presence in the temple courts. They have the confession of guilt that they're looking for, Jesus claims to be God the Son, but in the end, it's this court that stands condemned by the truth, because it turns out Jesus is the Son of God. The high priest and all the council on that day, they're the blasphemers. Today, we ought to humble ourselves before Jesus as we see Mark's count about the trial. Look at verse 65 with me. Some began to spit on him, cover his face, strike him, sing to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. He stands silent, he bears abuse, the false accusations about him, the cries of blasphemy, the spitting, the striking, the mocking, the beating, and the only time that he speaks up is to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Jesus stands in this courtroom in our place, and he's able to do so. He is able to stand in our place because he's the son of God, because of the reality of the gospel that he proclaimed. Now, in our passage, we have one more episode in this Mark on Sandwich to consider before we close today. If you look at verse 66, we've had the truth that doesn't matter. We've had the truth speak. And now we have the truth denied. Look at verse, if you look back at verse 52, we see that Peter followed at a distance. As he walks into the courtyard following at a distance, he sits by the fire and he's with all the guards. He's surely hearing mocking by his fellows in his, this courtyard. Those who were likely the very ones that went out to arrest Jesus is now walking and into the courtyard and he walks in with them and sits around the fire with them. We can hear his thoughts. What am I gonna do? What happens next? What can I do from here? And then we can remember Mark 13, 9. Jesus' words, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. 
So let's see how this first opportunity to bear witness about Jesus goes. We've seen Jesus. He did all those things. He does all these things in one day. Let's see how Peter fares, the first of his disciples. Verse 66 and 67. Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, seeing Peter warming himself. She looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Jesus, or Peter, goes on to deny it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. The first denial, I neither know nor understand. It's a thorough denial. I don't know who he is. And if I did, I certainly don't know him personally. I don't know what you mean by all this. And a rooster crowed. Peter goes away from the fire. He goes off to be in the gateway, probably to be less recognizable. I mean, that would be reasonable, right? I just got recognized by the fire. Better stand over here and, hey, it's closer to the exit anyway. I'm going to have to leave eventually, right? But he places himself also further from Jesus. Verse 69. The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. The servant girl tells the bystanders this time, gets a group involved. The second denial is the same. The word he denied him is in the imperfect tense. Mark presents Peter as making a continual, an ING, a denying defense protesting. I don't know anything about Jesus. I mean, I, I know you, you, there's something big hubbub and I just just walking by here like barely before morning and I came on in and I'm just, I don't, I don't know, I'm just in town for the Passover and so on. He's making an ongoing fit of denial. He appears to be trying to blend into the crowd who arrested Jesus, blending into the crowd that arrested Jesus, this man who will follow Jesus even to death rather than admitting that he himself is a follower. And then in verse 30, the crowd gets into it. Again, he he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them. You're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. Curse and swear, I don't know him. And the second rooster crowed. You see, Jesus was silent before his accusers, right? When he spoke, he spoke at great cost to himself. And when he spoke, he bore witness to the truth. When we say truth, we mean the gospel. He bore witness to himself. It was the title of the sermon last week, but the theme continues, Jesus stands alone. Man, we can fill a room with a lot of noise of our own self-justification. How rare is it that we make an open, costly statement of the truth? Verse 72, Peter wept. Just a little while earlier in Mark 14, truly I tell you, Jesus tells Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But Peter self-justification, coming to his own defense. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Man, I can't imagine what it was like to sit in front of that fire and think, I've made it this far, what's next? What's next? And then a girl comes and calls you out. There's one who is righteous. There is one who is willing and able and effectual to die. There's one who bears witness to the truth, and it turns out that it's the truth himself. There's a note that needs to be made about this passage. There are those in the history of the church that have tried to turn this passage into a cause for anti-Semitism. This court is a court of Jewish religious political leaders, and they're the evil ones. I can't believe this unjust court did all these horrible things. And it's true that what happened in this court is the single greatest mistrial in history, but is is a great self-righteousness, and it is a great self-justification to set these men up as unique in history. They're not unique at all. You put me in that room, I'll do it too. 
what happens in this trial is what happens in every human heart. Our hearts are filled with evil desires. Anything but the truth with a name. Anything else. Predetermined purposes for our lives. And then we just sort of work everything around us as a self-justification for what is our desires. Our fleshly appetites. And the truth is often an impediment to our own achievement, of our own desires, the truth about Jesus, the Son of God who gives life as a ransom for many, this is the greatest impediment to our own foolish view of ourselves. A crucified Jesus for sinners like me is a problem for the pursuit of my own desires in life. We don't want the truth about Jesus any more than they did in that courtroom because the truth about Jesus means that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And that whatever trajectory that my life is on, if it's not headed toward the truth, by means of the gospel, unto his kingdom, it's false. I don't like that. The truth about Jesus means that he alone has withstood the test of righteousness and is the only sacrifice. Some of us are bold. We walk in righteousness, right? We do things really well and we pretend and perform and we set ourselves up Not as the evildoers in the world, but the saviors of the world. And this too is an evil. We're not sufficient. We're not the saviors. The truth about Jesus means that not even the best among us, not even Peter, the leader of the disciples proves himself faithful on the day of judgment. If we're honest, we must confess that we don't want the truth about Jesus. If we want him out of the way so that we can go on about our lives. And if he would just get in line, step in behind me, and join the other false witnesses, then we can do quite well together, me and Jesus. The truth about Jesus is his suffering for sinners. And that's when the truth of his divinity rings most clear. It's for this reason that Jesus gives the clearest testimony of himself, his divinity, his role as the Christ, his glory in the heavenly places. He gives this testimony about himself at the inauguration of his greatest suffering in our place. You see, we can only know and understand Jesus to rob Peter of his words. We can only know and understand Jesus if we're willing to stand in light of his suffering for sinners like me, like you. Then we know. Then we understand the Christ. You see, all who come to Jesus and truly know him come to him in humble faith. That is, we come to Jesus knowing both who he is and what he's done. His divinity and glory tell us who he is, right? This is who he is, the divine glorious one. And his suffering tells us who we are. I call you to humble yourselves this morning before the open statement of the truth from the mouth of Jesus, to humble yourself before the truth of the gospel. You are a sinner in need of grace. This is the open statement of the truth. Jesus is the Son of God, and he is the one who has loved you by suffering in your place. For the redeemed this morning here, There's a powerful lesson for us in this episode about what it means to bear witness to the truth. There is little to commend self-justification. I have to tell you, I have to do business with this. Like, I'm not done with this passage after we close up together. There's little to commend self-justification. Jesus is kind of done with that just right here in our passage. There's even less to commend hiding or denial of the truth. But when it comes to the open statement of the truth of the Christ and his gospel, this alone, singularly, exclusively, is of utmost importance. When does Jesus speak? When do I speak? We must not fail to bear witness to him no matter the circumstance, no matter the consequence. And we ought to ask ourselves about what we are busy speaking about that we think is so very important, even in this cultural moment. There is that which is of utmost 
most important. He's the Lord. He's the Redeemer. And he reigns in power and glory. And friends, that's the amen. This is the open statement of the truth. Heavenly Father, (laughs) thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you gave us yourself, the divine one, taking on flesh, walking, living, talking, eating, working, even miracle, silent before his accusers. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the open statement of the truth. You are the Christ. You are the very Son of God, and you are the one who reigns in power and glory. You are the Son of Man of whom Daniel spoke and of whom you spoke just moments ago in the Gospel of Mark. Work on us, Lord. I pray that you would humble every one of us, and particularly those who have never come to you in faith this morning. Humble us before you. All of what it means to be you in the presence of people like us. And Lord, for all who have believed, I pray that we would not think we are therefore now to continue in self righteousness, but having been redeemed by your righteousness, may we always be humbled at the foot of your cross and called up into a beautiful way, enamored by nothing less than you, impressed by you, broken by you, rebuked by you, encouraged by you, built up by you. Thank you, Lord, that in doing this, you've established your church. We thank you for one another, that you've given us a people to walk with together that would be marked by repentance and worship. We pray that you would mark us yet even this morning in light of the truth, Jesus, that you would mark us with these things, repentance and worship and open proclamation of the glory of our God. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.